0: The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com/podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning, I'm James Holman from The Washington Post and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, September 17. In today's news, President Trump's plan for managing forests won't save us in a more flammable world. The CDC director says coronavirus vaccines will not be widely available until the middle of next year. And the latest crisis, low-income students are dropping out of college this fall in alarming numbers. But first, The Big Idea. Jim Mattis slept in his gym clothes when he was Trump's secretary of defense so that he could more quickly join a top secret conference call whenever he received an alert that a North Korean missile had been launched or was on the launch pad. A flashing light was installed in his home's bathroom so he would know immediately if such an alert came while he was showering. A bell would also ring in the bedroom and kitchen This happened several times during the summer of 2017, according to Bob Woodward's new book. The coverage of Rage has focused on Trump willfully downplaying the seriousness of the coronavirus during the early stages of the pandemic. But what I was most struck by when reading it was just how real the danger of a full-scale nuclear conflagration with North Korea seemed to be to the leaders of the U.S. government three summers ago. The schoolyard taunts from that time received plenty of attention. Kim Jong-un called Trump a dotard. Trump referred to Kim as Little Rocket Man and promised to rain down fire and fury if provoked. But there were also a series of missile launches and significant tactical escalations by both sides that registered little or no domestic attention. In an interview with Woodward for the book, Trump said war with Pyongyang was, quote, much closer than anyone would know. The president argued that conflict was ultimately averted because of his flattering letters and three face-to-face meetings with the 30-something totalitarian leader. Trump still points to North Korea as one of his greatest triumphs, but he acknowledged to Woodward that Kim has not given up a single one of his nuclear weapons. Indeed, he's expanding his programs and ballistic missile capabilities. Now, Mattis did not think Trump would actually order a preemptive nuclear strike on North Korea but Woodward reports that plans for strikes were dusted off and ready to go. The Strategic Command in Omaha had carefully reviewed and studied what was called O-Plan 5027 for regime change in North Korea. This was a U.S. response to an attack that could include the use of up to 80 nuclear weapons. Another plan for a leadership strike, called a decapitation strike, known as O-Plan 5015, was also updated with the latest targeting coordinates. The national event conference is what they call the emergency call of the national security leadership team to discuss what to do as soon as a missile is fired, the states back to the Cold War in case the Soviets attacked. Trump had delegated to Mattis the power to launch conventional interceptor missiles to try to shoot down any rockets he believed were heading toward the United States, South Korea, or Japan. If the U.S. shot down a missile. Mattis feared the North Koreans would fire more towards, say, Seattle, in his home state of Washington, because they have the capability, they still do, to hit the continental United States. Mattis says the potential we'd have to shoot down to prevent a second launch was real. Mattis ultimately would resign in protest at the end of 2018, when Trump ordered the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. But at the time, he expected that Trump would follow his recommendation on whether to use nukes. A communications room was set up in Mattis's residence on Potomac Hill here in Washington, and military aides built secure compartments called skiffs in tent-like structures whenever he traveled, at home or abroad. An SUV with a communications team always joined his motorcade. With their equipment, Mattis could see a geospatial map with an icon that tracked a North Korean missile's anticipated flight path. At 5.57 a.m., for example, on August 29th, 2017, a Tuesday, some exquisite intelligence, as it's known in the community, showed North Korea was about to launch another missile. Mattis signed on to the event conference from home. The military was locked and loaded, ready to fire, Mattis was told. He watched the icon as the missile passed directly over Japan and then dropped into the sea. Mattis still vividly remembers an aide desperately shaking him from restless sleep. It was a non stop crucible, personal and hellish. There were no holidays, no weekends off, no dead time. After finishing work for the day at the Pentagon, Mattis often went to the National Cathedral that summer to pray for wisdom, as he grew increasingly alarmed about the possibility of a nuclear exchange with North Korea that could cause millions of souls to perish. He would spend about ten minutes in the small, candle-lit War Memorial Chapel at the rear of the cathedral. He would direct his security detail to let him go in alone. Woodward explains in what I think is the most captivating chapter of his book that a few rows of chairs faced a modest altar and an oversized sculpture of the head of the crucified Jesus Christ, crowned by a halo of brass, meant to suggest cannon shells. To Mattis, it looked like a bursting bomb. Sometimes Mattis would go through the tall iron gates into the Holy Spirit chapel of the cathedral. That's a wood-paneled alcove where the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove. These visits gave Mattis strength, but never complete comfort. The possibility of recommending a nuclear strike heavily weighed on his conscience every single day, and it never felt theoretical. He knew he had to find peace before the moment came so he could give the order if it needed to be given. Mattis struggled with the moral implications of this kind of combat, and he was already war-weary from watching so many young men die during 40 years in his beloved Marine Corps, especially under his command in Iraq and Afghanistan. The retired four-star general often recited Abraham Lincoln's codes of war by heart. And as he went into the cathedral, he also remembered another quote from Lincoln, During the Civil War, I have been driven many times upon my knees, the 16th president said, by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, in California, smoke plumes spun into twisters made out of soot and flame, prompting the first ever fire tornado warning. In Oregon, blazes advanced on towns so rapidly that even fire crews had to flee. Never in memory have so many fires burned so much land in so many places over such a short span of time. The smoke has enveloped the whole continent, dimming the sun in cities more than 2,000 miles away. We can see it here in Washington still. Extreme climate change has arrived in America, and it burns. Fire experts say the nation needs new strategies to cope with the escalating danger but the country's top fire science budget has been slashed. Cuts that began in the last year of the Obama administration and have only accelerated under Trump, who has twice tried unsuccessfully to eliminate it altogether. States, which are struggling under the economic crisis caused by the coronavirus, have run short of funds for the scientific work. Trump, for his part, repeatedly, has been saying that forest management, harvesting trees to reduce fuel for fires, is the key to preventing wildfires, but every serious scientist argues that no amount of forest management can stop disasters in an ever more flammable world. In the American West, temperatures are already as much as four degrees Fahrenheit hotter than they were in the pre-industrial era. The scale of this year's fires have horrified even those who saw them coming. Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA, tells Juliet Perrin and Sarah Kaplan that we've entered what he calls a new era, the era of the mega fire. As dramatic as that sounds, ultimately, he says that's just what it is. Tim Inglesby, a veteran wildland firefighter who serves as executive director of the group Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology, says there are no climate change denialists on the front lines of this fight. Tim says it's not just the scale or frequency of blazes that's changed. It's their behavior. Extreme heat, such as the record-setting August, and kiln-like conditions in California over Labor Day weekend set the stage for fires that burn hotter and then more unpredictably. The intensity of the fires creates towering plumes of heat called pyrocumulus clouds, which in turn trigger the lightning storms and swirling fire tornadoes. Powerful winds push fires further and faster than firefighters know how to cope with. Embers carried far ahead of the main front enable fires to travel dozens of miles in a single day. Tim's home in Eugene, Oregon, is mere miles from the perimeter of the 167,000-acre Holiday Farm Fire, which is still burning this morning. He says it's, quote, like a blowtorch in a wind tunnel. These fires are beyond human control. Number two. The director of the CDC predicted yesterday that most of the American public will not have access to a coronavirus vaccine until late spring or summer of next year. At a Senate hearing on the government's response to the pandemic, CDC director Bob Redfield adhered to Trump's oft-stated desire for a safe and effective vaccine to become available in November or December, perhaps just before the presidential election, which is less than seven weeks away. But Redfield said the vaccine will be provided first to people most vulnerable to COVID, and then as supplies increase over time, Americans who are lower priority for protection will be offered the shot more gradually. For it to be fully available to the American public, so that we can begin to get back to our regular life, Redfield said we are, quote, probably looking at late second quarter, third quarter, 2021. Though any individual vaccinated should benefit. He said the progressive widening of the availability of the vaccine means there will be a time lag between when a shot is approved and when it would have a measurable effect in controlling the pandemic. Redfield predicts that that might be six to nine months after the day it's approved by federal regulators. This is the most detailed time frame outlined yet by a federal senior public health official. Meanwhile, the government's top health communications official is taking a medical leave three days after urging Trump's supporters to prepare for an armed insurrection and accusing government scientists of sedition. Michael Caputo, the assistant secretary at HHS, leveled these accusations and promoted other outlandish conspiracy theories during a Facebook Live event on Sunday. HHS said in a statement that Caputo will be on leave for the next 60 days to focus on his health and the well-being of his family. That means he'll be gone until after the election. The agency also announced that Paul Alexander— Caputo's top aide will be leaving the agency permanently. Alexander has come under scrutiny in recent weeks for his efforts to exert control over the messages coming from scientists and other health officials, including the content of those weekly science reports from the CDC, in order to make them conform to the president's false assertions that the virus is under control. Number three. In August, Paige McConnell became the first in her family to go to college. Now, she's also the first to drop out. McConnell, 18, could not make online classes work. She doesn't have Wi-Fi at her rural home in Crossville, Tennessee. The local library turned her away, not wanting anyone sitting around during the pandemic. She spent hours in a McDonald's parking lot using the fast food chain's internet, but she kept getting kicked off her college's virtual classes because the network wasn't safe. Two weeks after starting at Rowan State Community College, Page gave up. Page's situation is playing out all over our country. As the fall semester gets into full swing, schools are noticing a worrisome trend. Low-income students are the most likely to drop out or not enroll at all, raising fears that they might never get a college degree. My colleagues Heather Long and Danielle Douglas-Gabriel report that 100,000 fewer high school seniors completed financial aid applications to attend college this year, the lower enrollment figures are the latest sign of how the economic devastation unleashed by this crisis has weighed more heavily on lower-income Americans and minorities who have suffered higher levels of unemployment and a higher incidence of COVID. Students from families with incomes under $75,000 are nearly twice as likely to say they canceled all plans to take classes this fall as students from families with incomes over $100,000, according to census data. The drop-off in college enrollment is unusual, in particular to this pandemic. During the Great Recession, college enrollment actually grew. Typically enrollment jumps during economic downturns because jobs are scarce and people are looking for training. Yet the opposite's happening right now. Students who were the first in their families to pursue college degrees don't take gap years to travel and work in unpaid internships. When low-income students stop attending schools, they tend to rarely return. That diminishes their job and wage prospects for the rest of their lives. The fear here is that people like Paige will be part of a lost generation of low-income students in our country who will find themselves stuck in the debilitating multi-generational cycle of poverty. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, September 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.